All right, so uh, just a quick intro to bring us up to speed. We're going through a sermon series entitled The Gospel Story. Now, there's a reason why we're going through this series the way we're going through it. First of all, I think when most of us think about the Bible, if we grew up in church, we think about something like this comes to mind. It's a, it's a list of books. Uh, most of us or some of us can put them in some kind of order. We know that Genesis is the beginning. We know that Revelation is the end. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are somewhere in there. Um, and so something like this comes to mind. But what we're doing in this sermon series is we're actually looking at the overarching story of the Bible, the gospel story, a story of redemption. And so what we did last week is we started in Genesis 1 and 2, looking at really the first big event in this story, the opening scene of the story at creation. So what we're going to do this week is we're going to move to chapter 3 of Genesis and look at the next really big scene in the story which is the fall. And so we're going to start in Genesis chapter 3 in verse 1. But before we even start, I wanted to uh, just illustrate um, how far we've fallen even before we talk about the fall. So I don't know if you keep up with pop culture TV series now with like Netflix and Amazon. It's so hard to even keep up with what's happening and this TV series launches and this one launches. And there's one called um, Marriage at First Sight. Um, I don't know if you've seen this, but the, the whole premise of this is that they bring in um, psychologists and sociologists, and what they try to do is they try to pair the two perfect people together, and every season they'll put three couples together, and now if you're one of these couples to participate, you have to commit from the front end to marry whoever they set you up with, and so this takes place in a hotel, you meet this person for the first time, you get married, they ship you off to your honeymoon, and you have to stay committed and married for eight weeks. Now, at the end of eight weeks, you decide if you want to stay married. This is run for five seasons, so you've had 15 couples uh, already who've, who've done this. And uh, out of those 15 couples, 10 chose to stay married after eight weeks, which is a two-thirds success rate. Uh, but then, interestingly enough, as of this last November, of those 15, or of those 10, only three are still together. And this thing has only been airing for a couple of years and so now we're down to like a 20% success rate, which, of course, by God's standards, none of that is successful. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I say that to illustrate like how far we've fallen, right? And it's not that, um, that, that we've fallen from the little house on the prairie idea of family and, 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 and morality and ethics. We've fallen a lot further from that. It's not just our TV shows that have fallen, but it is the, the very fabric and DNA of who we are and what we were designed to do here on earth that has fallen. And so today we're going to journey all the way back to Genesis 3, where everything fell and began to come unraveled. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent. This is the introduction of the serpent, Satan, God's enemy in the story. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So last week we looked at day six, the creation of man, how, how we were created, human beings were created from the beginning to worship, uh, to dwell in rich community, and to live missionally, building a kingdom for God. That's what we were designed to do, right? And in that design, God gives a command to the man, you shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So now the serpent is referencing that, and in a way, hijacking that to create a lie. What's the lie? I would propose this is the greatest lie ever told. It's a lie still being told today, and many of us today have bought into it and believed the lie. And here's the lie. Autonomy. The lie is autonomy. What does autonomy mean? Here's some some other words that you can use to describe autonomy. Independence, self-sufficiency, self-government, self-rule, sovereignty. You follow me now? This is the greatest lie ever told, that human being... Mankind, man, woman, you can be sovereign, independent, self-sufficient, self-governing, self-ruling, autonomous. And ultimately what the lie is, 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 is this. The serpent is saying to the woman, and keep in mind the man is in earshot. We know this because he's with her. So the lie is given to both of them. The lie is this. You don't have to submit to God and bear his image you can bear your own image you can be your own God and what does he say God doesn't want you to be what like him now what's interesting is we learned last week we were created in his what likeness what does that mean we talked about last week to reflect who he is that's not what the serpent is saying He's not saying that God doesn't want you to be in his likeness reflecting him. What the serpent is saying is God doesn't want you to be like him. To be self-governing, self-ruling, to develop your own standards, to decide your own destiny, your own purpose in life. And this is what I would propose to you as the greatest lie ever told and believed. And many of us, our lives are inundated with struggle. We think about our testimony And every struggle comes from believing this lie. Think about it. I mean, every sin is rooted here, right? I know what's best for me. Yes, I know what God said the uh, end results would be or uh, what the effect would be if I did this. Adam and Eve are fully aware of that, right? She said it. We'll die. But you know what? I'm going to choose my own path, my own destiny, my own route, my own decisions. I'm going to choose what I believe will make me happy. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. This is what I want to focus on right now. Opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So what were their eyes open to? Now remember the name of the tree, that God, the name that God gave the tree? It was the tree of the knowledge of what? 
good and evil, right? And we know from the seven days of creation that God stamps each day with the word, it is good. So at this point in Genesis chapter 2, before this happens, man and woman only have a knowledge of what is good. Everything they see is good. Everything they touch is good. Everything they smell is good. Everything they feel is good. So when Adam looks at Eve's unclothed body, it's good. It's not distorted. It's not perverted. It's good. When Eve looks at Adam undressed, she sees him, and there's nothing embarrassing about that. There's nothing distorted about that. She sees it, and that's good. But now their eyes are open. Now they have a knowledge of what is not good. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Or the tree of the knowledge of good and not good. Now, they believe the lie, ultimately. And believing the lie, right, if we go back to Genesis 1 and 2, distorts the very fabric of what they were created to do and reflect God's image. We were created to worship God, to reflect his image in the world around us. And so now, by believing the lie, worship is distorted. Adam and Eve are no longer worshiping God, they're worshiping themselves. When, when Eve saw that the fruit was, was desirable, right? So who is she seeking to please in that moment? Herself. Self-worship. Self-worship. Now, they begin to cover themselves up because with sin comes what? Shame. Instantly, right? And what's crazy is, so sin is rooted in self-worship or this false belief of autonomy, independence, self-sufficiency, self-governing. I, I decide for myself what I want to do. Right? That's the root of sin. Right? But then what happens when we sin is immediately shame enters. And, and what will happen to us is we'll get stuck in this cycle. We get into shame, and shame leads us to what? Self-worship. Because why? What do we want to do? We want to hide. We want to preserve self. We want to blame shift. We want to, we want to try to clean up the mess. And what happens is we end up worshiping self all the more, which leads to more what? Shame. This vicious cycle. Self-worship and shame. Self-worship and shame. Self-worship and shame. The two responses we see from Adam and Eve, verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you or revealed to you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to me, you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, Me? No, the serpent deceived me. She knew right away she believed a lie, right? Serpent deceived me, and I we talked about that cycle of self-worship and shame, and the two, two things that happen when we encounter shame, we just saw it play out right here. First thing is we hide, right? Get in this vicious argument with your spouse, and in the end, you realize you said a bunch of things you didn't 
shouldn't have said, and you're feeling shame for that, the last thing you want to do is go back and own it, right? Or is that just me? Right? Or you, you, you fly off the handle at your kids, and you, you get angry, and you, and you sin in your anger, and then when it's all done, you feel like, ah, oh, last thing you want to do is go back and, and own it. That's the feeling of wanting to hide. Can we just pretend like that didn't happen? Can we just move on? I mean, you know my heart, and right? You know I didn't mean all that stuff. Can we just pretend like everything's fine? That's a version of hiding, right? And the second thing is, once that doesn't work, and we've been kind of drugged back out of the dark into the light, the next thing we do is we, we, we blame shift, right? And anytime there's hiding or blame shift, right? Where there's smoke, there's fire. There's shame involved. You're embarrassed. You're shameful for what you've done, right? So where there's shame, there's sin. And where there's sin, there's distorted worship, self-worship. You see how that plays out in Genesis 3? And it plays out in 2018 in our lives as well. Right? It's not just about Adam and Eve and a tree in a garden. This is about Hallie and Jason in our house last Thursday night. Right? It's about Jason and his son Calvin last Wednesday morning getting ready for school and Calvin won't get his act together. And, right? This is about our lives. Now, here's what happens. God, obviously, as he's asking these questions, he already knows the answers. Right? He's not seeking information. What he's seeking is repentance. And, and there is none at this point. And so God follows this up with the curse. He curses the serpent. He curses the ground. We're going to look at verse 16 and specifically what he says to the woman. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. That, that happens, right, ladies? Okay, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And I want to focus on that last sentence first. So here's what happens. When our worship gets distorted, which is what happened at, at, with the serpent, worship got distorted, here's what follows. Now our community gets distorted. Did you, did you catch the, the, the verbiage in that last sentence? Your desire, woman, shall be contrary to your husband. You're going to want things he doesn't want. You're going to want him to do things he doesn't want to do. There's going to be tension in the marriage. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. This is not the God design of leadership here. This is barbaric, authoritarian, trample over leadership here. This is a result of the fall. Now, to further understand what, the, what was being said here, um, if, you, if you go to the next chapter where you find Cain and Abel, you remember this story, right? Cain and Abel. So God's warning Cain uh, about what sin does. And in verse 7 of chapter 4, he says, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin, listen to this, is crouching at your door. Listen to the wording. Its desire is contrary to you. Does it sound familiar? But you must rule over it. Same wording here describing this, this battle between human flesh right, and sin. This, it's, sin is always crouching at the door, looking to, to devour you, to kill you, to, to steal from you. You must rule over it. That's the wording here. That's the tension now being applied to marriage. 
Well, that explains a lot, doesn't it? The reason my wife and I argue is not because of personality clash, it's because of the fall. The reason my wife and I argue is not because of all the things that I think she should do differently and all the things she should, thinks I should be differently, do differently. There's tension there. There's a wrestling there. Her desire is going to be contrary to mine. And my desire is going to be to rule over her, to dominate her in a non-godly, non-biblical, non-Christ-centered way. Whether I do that with my physical um, strength or I do that with the, 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 my voice or I use manipulation or I use my silence as a tool against her, all my motives are the same now. Why? Because of the fall. And so with distorted worship, we see the next thing that goes is distorted community. That's why they hid from one another right off the bat. You see that? Before the fall, husband and wife were together. They were naked and there was no shame. They had intimate community. And as soon as sin entered, what happened? Boom. We see disunity. Practical implications of distorted community. Lack of trust, any trust issues in the room? Okay, that's a distortion of community. That's not the way God designed community to work. Lack of trust is the opposite of what we were designed to do. We were designed to dwell in rich, unified, transparent community. Lack of trust. I'm only willing to uh, let you into my life at a level I'm comfortable with. Lack of intimacy. I'm only going to let you know the version of me that I'm comfortable with you getting to know. There's some stuff about me I'm not comfortable with, with you knowing. So we see lack of trust, lack of intimacy, and a lack of binding unity. What do we mean by that? It's the easy come, easy go society. It's the society that says, hey, let's get married for eight weeks. If it doesn't work out, let's bail. No big deal. And that's not just a TV show, is it? That's indicative of our culture. And it's not just marriages, it's friendships. It's church membership, right? The, the second something goes wrong and I feel tension, what do I do? I'm backing up. I'm gonna, I'm gonna back away from this. I'm gonna withdraw intimacy and, and unity and, and trust here. Whew, until you can show me that I need, to get a little, I need to let the guards down and come back. And what do we do? Easy come, easy go, bail. You know what? I was looking for somebody when I found you. I'll just find another. And that becomes this worldview that is accepted in our culture today. What happened to for better or for worse? What happened to, no, we're, we're not going anywhere. We just got to work through this. Tension doesn't mean that we, I married the wrong person. Tension's going to happen. Tension isn't to be avoided. It's to be what? Work through. And so we see distorted community. Next thing I want to look at, starting in verse 17. He said, and to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. Now listen right here, guys. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So for the lady, she's going to feel pain in childbirth. For the man, he's going to feel pain when he works. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. 
By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you, till, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So what was the mission we talked about last week? Be fruitful and multiply, and then have dominion over the created world. It's the mission. Expand the kingdom of God through multiplication. Now you see how mission's distorted? Ladies, now childbirth is going to be painful. God's making that announcement here. He could have even said, ladies, some of you are not going to live through childbirth. It's going to be painful. Not even make you resent your husband. Even more. Right? It's, it's part of the curse. Men. Working the garden by God's original design was joy-filled. It didn't, it didn't steal life out of you. It, it infused you with life. Is that how you feel at the end of your work day? No. Most of us know. We're tired. It was hard. Whether it's my back or my brain, I'm tired. It was hard to, to work the ground this day. It was hard to work the ground this week. Why? Because now our mission has been distorted. Now, from here, from Genesis 3 all the way through Genesis 11, we're going to see this mass unraveling of God's design here. It's almost like an earthquake happens in Genesis 3, and then from 4 through 11, it's these tremors, these aftershocks that just keep rattling and, and tearing things apart. That's why the very next chapter, we've got Adam and Eve's sons, one's killing the other. Murder happens like that. Genesis chapter 5, listen to this, this is the first three verses. This is the book of the generations of Adam. So we're about to read about the genealogy of Adam. When God created man, he made him, in, made him in the likeness of God. So we get that reminder. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and he named them man, and they were created. When Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. And this sets forward in motion, this passing on from generation to generation, this distorted um, image-bearing quality, right? So Adam was created in God's image. It gets distorted in the fall. Then he passes that on to Seth. And Seth, Seth passes that on to his children. And his children pass it on to his children. We talked about this last week. Just, just giving birth to new people doesn't fix our problem, right? Which leads us to... The flood account. Listen to this. The next chapter, Genesis 6, verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face um, of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. It's not a 2018 issue. So right now it's a Genesis chapter 6 issue. Listen to verse 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only what? Evil continually, or all the time. What started as, hey, let's sow some fig leaves and hide from one another, has become incredibly distorted and dark, hasn't it? So what does God do with the flood? He wipes out an entire generation of people, humanity, and starts again. Does that fix the problem? No. That leads us to the tower of the city of Babel. 
Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis chapter 11, sin has culminated uh, again, and man is now seeking to make his own name great, is what we read about in Genesis 11. That was the motive behind building this tower, was man wanted to make a great name for himself. You see that self-worship is still driving, that distorted worship leading to what? Distorted community. Now, they're rallying together, they're organizing, let's build our own city, our own kingdom, our own tower, let's make our own name great. Let's don't be image bearers, let's, let's be like God. Distorted mission, and this is where God separates the nations by confusing their language. And so much of Genesis 1 through 11 is really just going back to this idea of the story. It's the introduction to the story. It explains why when God called Jonah, he ran. Right? It explains why Saul right, was not a good king. It explains why, why David, even one who was a, a decent king, right, was, was corruptible and committed adultery and murdered. explains the rest of the story. Leaving humanity longing for, yearning for someone to rescue us. Self-worship is what initiated the fall. Adam and Eve didn't want to be in God's likeness. They wanted to be like, a, like God. Once worship was distorted, community and mission followed. Self-worship still has the same effect on our lives today. Doesn't it? Show me a husband and wife going at one another, and I'll show you self-worship. Show me somebody whose life is driven to build a great name for themselves rather than building a kingdom for God, living their own mission rather than his. And right, you don't have to look very hard to see what? Self-worship. Self-worship leads to self-centered relationships and conversations. We engage in community as long as it's, listen, comfortable and we perceive that it will be beneficial Am I going to get involved with this? I don't know. Well, how would it benefit me? That's self-centered, isn't it? If I'm going to choose to be your friend based on how you're going to make me feel, that's self-centered. We choose our friendships by gravitating toward those who make us feel good about ourselves or offer something to us that seems beneficial to us. When we don't feel accepted or included, we respond with either gossip or pity party. That those are all distortions of community, aren't they? Self-worship leads to self-centered mission. We engage in mission that makes us feel better about ourselves. Think about that. We engage in mission that oftentimes makes us feel better about ourselves. Isn't that self-centered? But I'm doing this for other people. We help those that we perceive are in need. We engage in the part of the mission that interests us or sounds like fun. We go on mission trips that are appealing to us rather than being open to go somewhere completely uncomfortable. Do something completely uncomfortable. We engage in personal evangelism when it is perceived to be safe or comfortable or easy. We love that, right? When the coworker comes and sits down and says, will you just tell me how to become a Christian? Yeah, now I'll engage in personal evangelism, right? It's easy, it's safe. I don't have to worry about offending you or not having the, right? It's comfortable. 
All these distortions stem from believing the lie. What's the lie? God doesn't want you to be like him. Autonomy, independence, self-governing, self-ruling. You and I were not created to be autonomous beings. Hear me. You were not created to be an autonomous being. You were created to, to live in submission to God, to reflect his image on the earth, to dwell in rich community, interdependence, needing one another, living his mission, not your own mission, his mission. We were not created to be autonomous beings. There is only one being that is truly autonomous. Guess who he is? God, the only being who is self-sufficient, self-governing, independent, and truly sovereign. And when, when you or I seek to become autonomous, what are we trying to do? Be like him. And everything unravels, right? Everything unravels from there. I want to land here today, um, and we're going to come back next week and start leaning towards hope, because it, it kind of leaves off kind of dark, doesn't it? Kind of hopeless, and we're going to next week come back and start leaning towards the hope that we find in Jesus, and that'll take us up to Easter, and I'm excited about where we are, but here's what I want to do today is we're talking through these distortions. Surely you're, you were thinking about your own life. And where these distortions have played out in your life, maybe in the last week, maybe even this morning. I don't know. Just going out on a limb here. And so what do we do today with that? What do we do with that? Here's, here's, what's, here's what's awesome about the story. We already know how it ends. Right? We know where the rescue is. That's when we have a cross on our stage. We don't have to wait until next week or until we get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to know that God rescues us. And I don't know where you are today. If you've never encountered the living God personally for yourself, like I want you to know today, more than anything, he wants to engage you in this relationship and he wants to begin restoring all that has been lost. And it starts by trusting in Jesus and him alone. That's where we have to start. You can't just add church attendance to your life and think that's gonna fix anything. You can't just come show up and sing songs with us and think that's gonna fix anything. You've got to, in your own relationship with God, by faith, trust in Jesus as your savior. If that's you today and, and, and you would like somebody to talk with you about that or to pray with you in making that decision, in a moment our prayer partners will be down front and at the back and they'd be honored to pray with you today. Maybe you've, you're here this morning and you're a Christian, but yet you're, you're seeing how prevalent the struggle still is and how prone you are to continue to believe the lie, right? And how that impacts community and mission and, and all of your life. And so today would be a day of, of maybe just revisiting the cross fresh and anew, realigning worship off of self, because that's, that's where it went wrong. That's where we have to start in getting it back right, isn't it? So, so if your marriage is in a wreck, you don't start with marriage counseling. You start by going to the cross. Then we work on marriage counseling and all those kinds of things. But you've, you've got to get your worship right first. And so maybe that's where you are today. And when we sing this next song, that's my hope and prayer is that we would realign our hearts and allow God to recalibrate our affections towards him. So I'm going to invite our worship team. You guys come on up and our prayer partners to move forward. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to respond. Um, Father, thank you for... Um, God, the way that you tell the story. And God, as we read Genesis 3 today, we're so, um, you've made it so clear 
that Adam and Eve's struggle um, is our struggle still today. God, we're still prone to believe the lie. We're still prone to want to be like you rather than created in your likeness and reflect you. And so, God, this morning I pray that, that today would be a time of sweet surrender for us, that we would journey to the cross, some of us for the first time, some of us for the thousandth time, that, God, you would recalibrate our hearts this morning, you would realign our worship off of ourselves and back onto you. We pray all this in Jesus' precious, precious name, God. Would you move in our midst?